The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. So, here I am again. Um, <laughs> question number one. Uh, so, first of all, I mean, this is, this is a time to discuss, but I think we should sort of get our bearings and discuss like what the political moment looks like currently. If, if both of you could just offer a little bit of a snapshot of, of the political situation in the U.S. right right now, I think that'd be a great starting point. Sure. So we said I'd go first. Um, thanks, everyone. Is, does this mic work okay? I'm not just sitting. Sorry, sitting down and talking is not quite my thing. Um, so I think we're living in a political moment uh, defined in the first place by the economic crisis of 2008 and 2009. I think that that has to be our starting point. And this is really the backdrop to what we've seen over the last 10 years um, with the occupation of the Capitol building in Madison, Wisconsin, the rise of Occupy Wall Street, the rise of Black Lives Matter, um, and as you all heard so well last night, the teachers' rebellion that swept across the United States this spring. Um, it's also the backdrop to the return of questions of class and inequality right to the sort of forefront um, of politics. And I think there's also a rebirth of a left that is a defining feature of this political moment. But I believe that the last two years have also begun to usher in a new era that I think is currently in formation um, and is not yet defined. And I think the backdrop to this is also rooted in the economic crisis, but also in the response to it and what's developed over the last 10 years as well. Because I think it's hard to remember today, and I think maybe many people becoming socialists today were even maybe children or teenagers at the time. Um, but the election of Barack Obama in this country in 2008 was a political earthquake. Um, and it's easy to read backwards and see Obama as simply a drone-dropping liberal. Um, but at the time, he was invested with tremendous hope and raised expectations. Um, the ruling class was talking about the greatest crisis um, since the Great Depression in the 1930s. There was an expectation that perhaps he would bring foreclosure assistance because you had a massive crisis of foreclosures that was going on. Um, I think he had an entire list of things that we were hoping might happen towards Guantanamo, Employee Free Choice Act, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that hope evaporated quite quickly um, and turned into a rehabilitation of the status quo on the backs of the working class and the oppressed. And that's been the experience of the last 10 years, the bailing out of the banks, the restoration of profits, declining living standards, and growing inequality. Um, and in the briefest and shortest of terms, this is how we got Trump. Um, because the question became, where did I put this? The question became, you all know the answer. The question became <laughs> the status quo, Trump, or none of the above. Um, and the majority went for none of the above, but that's not an option in our society, so Trump's our president. Um, and so now you have a growing right wing with not just a voice, but a leader in the White House, and a shift in politics, um, both on the ground, but also at an official level, with the rise of economic nationalism, the bringing back of warmongers that were considered even too far right for the Bush regime, the appointment, I mean, I, I don't wanna, I, I, the gravity of this, the appointment of a torturer to the head of the CIA and the signal that that sends around the world, a literal campaign of terror against immigrants, the passage of a tax bill that is a massive transfer of wealth but also sets the stage for even greater attacks on working class living standards. Um, and now I haven't gone to the factor that's the topic of this discussion, which is the growth of the left and a desire for a left-wing alternative, because I think that's the that's what DSA is a product of, and that's also um, a huge part of this. 
and I'll talk about that later, but I want to say in the first instance that I think we can expect the broader sense of resistance as we've seen it expressed in the last year and a half and as it spectacularly re-emerged on the streets in the last two weeks in response to the kidnappings of immigrant children at the border. Um, I think that we are going to see that expressed primarily through the elections first in 2018 and then in 2020. And there's a real possibility that the Democrats could take back both houses of Congress and the White House. Um, and that's gonna face the left with new conditions. I'm just gonna end here. I think there's two issues there. One is that Trump has moved the needle and given confidence to right-wing forces that won't just disappear by electing him out of office. He's constructed an apparatus. He's given confidence to far-right forces. The tax bill sets up an ongoing dynamic of potential austerity. Um, and the second problem is that the status quo was and remains intolerable. And that is what the Democrats will preside over. Um, and that will raise new challenges for us. So in short, I think we're in a more unstable, more polarized world um, that is in the beginning of figuring out what comes after neoliberalism. And that I think we'll see sharper um, struggles and sharper divisions that are going to pose like real challenges for the left. So I'm very excited that we're able to have this conversation because I think it's the very beginning. So I'm going to be a little bit more brief on this question, um, in part because I basically agree with everything that Jen said um, uh, and, th and think that it's really important. But one thing that I think is sort of new about the period that we're in is that on the left, there's been a sort of transition from protest to politics, from something like the G20 protests or Occupy, um, people are still interested rightly in mass mobilization, but there's a turn towards building organization, um, towards trying to cont contest state policies in some way, right? Um, and I think that what this comes from is a recognition of the sort of intensified role that the state has under neoliberalism in facilitating upward redistribution, in imposing austerity, um, in increasing the repressive functions of the state, like the police, um, and making them more central to how people experience the state, right? Um, and so I think people are noticing that happening, um, and they're responding to it, and they're responding to the need to contest the state in some, in some form or fashion, um, right? The sort of abstentionist um, tendencies that used to exist very strongly on the left, um, uh, they still exist, but they're not as strong as they they were before, right? Um, and there's a new urgency to figuring out, like, um, despite all of the contradictions, um, how do we contest um, the state's role in capitalist society, right? Um, but there is a contradiction to this um, because just as people are being becoming more open to this orientation, the state is more insulated than ever, the American state is more insulated than ever to challenges of popular democracy, um, right? Um, and we see this most clearly in uh, actually the war-making powers of, um, of the president um, that, you know, people criticize Democrats for being like, oh, you didn't even allow us to vote on um, the, the Syria bombing campaign, right? Um, because people saw that as like, oh, you're arguing about whether you could vote on it instead of whether we should have a war. Um, uh, but there's something to that in that um, the 
decision of whether to go to war um, is so completely removed from popular democracy um, that even our elected representatives have no say in it. Um, the president can essentially do whatever he wants in this area, right? Um, and so we are, and ICE is actually a similar phenomenon um, where the way that immigration control works, um, you know, we all know the story that under Obama, um, uh, more people were deported from the United States than ever before. Um, the basic structure of um, our immigration uh, enforcement in the United States um, uh, is pretty consistent between uh, administrations. What changes is the sort of like more or less brutal priorities of the, of the president, right? Um, and so I think that what we see is that while there's um, a greater turn towards politics instead of protest in trying to contest um, the state, um, there's also much, much greater insulation from popular democracy, um, and that this is actually a greater challenge than it's ever been before for us. Thanks. So that was a, thanks for those snapshots. I, I just want to move a little bit towards the the, the socialist left specifically. I wonder what you both think. Um, you know, I see. I mean, I'll, there's a lot written on Facebook or whatever. The left is so small. The left is so this. The left is so that. I mean, there's things to say. I mean, I think there's a realistic. There's room to be realistic about our size and our capacity. But there's also some things that are have been you know really really good. There's independent victories. There's you know organizations blowing up like you know DSA for instance is now 45,000 members. That's and, you know, and while certainly more modestly, uh, our own organization has grown considerably as well. I mean, there are some so real things to say to sort of take balance of, of the left. And I'm wondering if the two of you can speak to what's the state of the socialist left? Um, what are the tasks in the, and then what are the tasks given you know what we want, what you want, what our respective organizations want to accomplish. What are the tasks in the uh, short and immediate terms for your respective organizations? Like, what does the left look like right, socialist left look right now, and how do you see your organizations fitting into that, and what specific specific tasks? So, in terms of strengths and weaknesses, um, Leo Panich and Sam Ginden recently wrote a really excellent little book, um, and in it they said something really incisive, um, which is that in this turn from protest to politics on the left, um, there's also been another transformation, which is that the left is more class-focused, is the phrase that they used, um, than it has been in a really long time. Um, people are talking about inequality. Um, they're talking about the 1%. They're talking about how capitalism um, is the source of our problems. They're talking about how social oppressions are linked to capitalism. Um, it's much more um, of a class rhetoric than we've had in decades, right? Um, but, um, and I view this as a very positive development, um, but it's not class-rooted, um, meaning that uh, it's not necessarily rooted um, in the sort of core institutions of the working class, the core sectors of the working class, um, and it doesn't talk about the working class as the agent of transformation under capitalism, um, right? And so in DSA, what this means practically is that um, you know, I really reject the idea that 
our membership is not working class. I don't think that's true. Um, but what it is is a sort of isolated and uh, isolated section of the working class, right? Um, it's predominantly white. Um, down, downwardly, although that's changing a little bit with our growth, um, downwardly mobile millennials um, who are in jobs like in academia, in media, in tech, um, in uh, really precarious service sector jobs or something like that. Um, and what that means is that in their everyday life, in their everyday interactions, um, and just structurally, um, they're sort of separated from uh, working class life in general, right? Um, and from the sectors of the economy, um, like logistics, um, or like the Teamsters, or um, the public sector, um, that have like a lot of weight in our economy, right? Um, and so, and that really limits our ability um, to act as agents of social transformation in society. Um, uh, and and be related to the fact that we're not rooted in these areas of society um, is that most of the left doesn't have an analysis um, or an especially strongly held analysis that the working class, as I said, is the agent of social transformation under capitalism. Um, uh, they have a critique of capitalism, they have a critique of the ruling class, um, but there's not an understanding of the need to organize the working class um, uh, in order to uh, overcome capitalism, right? Um, and I, I think that this is a sort of serious limit of the left right now because it leads um, actually back into protest instead of politics. Um, as people become frustrated at, at our ineffectiveness, um, as people realize, like, realize their isolation, um, they turn back into um, sort of like endless protests or endless marches, um, or, you know, I have a lot of disagreements with my ISO comrades about um, electoral politics and the Democratic Party, um, but another threat of this isolation is people really taking on a very narrow electoral outlook um, and focusing in a very narrow way on elections, right? Um, uh, because they don't have faith that the working class majority um, can mobilize and organize in a way um, uh, that could affect change, right? Um, uh, and so they want the shortcut of electoral politics um, uh, and so those, those are the um, I think the sort of broad strengths and weaknesses of the left right now um, and uh, one more practical weakness um, that we have in DSA but it does pose a serious problem um, is leadership development for us is like a very serious problem um, right now because you know the massive and really rapid growth has been such a blessing and in one sense you would think that that would give us more capacity and it does in some way it does give us more capacity in some way but there's also a problem where you know uh there are so many activists that there's so many activists at the base um that with just a little bit of support could become really fantastic leaders, um, uh, really fantastic organizers, intellectual leaders, all of that stuff. Um, but the most experienced and effective people in the organization are, com are who are in leadership right now are completely tied down in just trying to run the organization um, in very with very little resources. Um, in a day-to-day -day, um, sense, they don't have the capacity to do that small amount of leadership development that 
could bring people up, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it has a depoliticizing effect, actually, which is the real danger of it, um, because people are so consumed with like, uh, how do I set up a bank account for my chapter? Um, or you know, things like that um, that are just like the huge ta administrative tasks of. Um, trying to make this organization work, um, that they don't have time to do that leadership development and they don't have time to think about, uh, they don't have the brain space to think about, you know, what's going on in the American politics? Um, like, is our what is the intervention that our organization actually wants to make in American politics? Um, you know, aside from ending capitalism, what is our, what is our goal? Um, uh, and, um, and so it can have a depoliticizing effect, and that's one uh, serious problem that I think we need to confront. Um, I don't know if I should, we should divide this a little bit, because mm -hmm. sure. um, maybe I'll take on the tasks after I let sure. Daniel, yeah. Sure. Okay. So we're going to divide tasks. Yeah. Um, okay. I was going to jump right into tasks because I agreed with so much of what Ella said about the sort of snapshot of the U.S. left um, as Jason asked it. I guess I'll just say a couple of things and be really brief and we can get into tasks. Uh, the first thing I'll just say in terms of a snapshot of the, the U.S. left is that I feel like there's a new socialist movement being born and it's like a cleansing stream on the left in the last 40 years, honestly. Um, and I don't mean that in a way to negate anything about what those of us for the last 40 years have been doing to build and the importance of that project and I'm gonna come back to that at later parts in this discussion. But I think that it has reopened our horizons and re-centered the discussion in this country from just, you know, debates that sometimes feel like they're not going anywhere, or having the same debates over and over again, going through that sort of process of you know, trying to recruit people to socialist organizations, trying to build up some kind of opposition, trying to build up some kind of movements, and then you know, the process of then it collapses, and then you rebuild it, and you're trying to build a thread of continuity. And right now, I think what we're seeing is the entrance of tens of thousands of people into political activity who consider themselves socialists. And that's a decisively new situation for us, and for everyone, not just for the 45,000 members of DSA and not just for the ISO or Socialist Alternative, but there's also new independent socialist organizations being born. There's new movement organizations being born. And I think all of us are trying to figure out how do we find our way forward together in this new moment that this aspect of it's incredibly exciting, but the sense of the stakes and the urgency um, and you know, I said this at the end of the talk yesterday, like the stakes of the question of socialism or barbarism have kind of never been so great. Um, and then I think the other thing I would just say to add to the weaknesses, or maybe this is even a way of contextualizing the weaknesses you're talking about, is that we're coming out of a period of historic weakness of the left. Um, the collapse of Stalinism was an incredibly positive thing for getting rid of the idea that the Soviet Union or China or any of these states had anything to do with the genuine socialist tradition and I think that that's incredibly important but it also meant the complete collapse of all the institutional opposition forces um, and the complete decay of the traditional parties and it meant that any kind of memory of what does it even mean to build a left? How do we have debates? How do we disagree and still unite in action um, and join each other tomorrow? How do we not just split over every small question but begin to cohere and accumulate our forces? Like, how do we learn and transmit the lessons from people who fought 20 years ago to those who fought 10 years ago to those who fought today? Um, the links 
bringing those things together are very tenuous. They exist, and I think that that's an enormous contribution. I feel that the ISO is made, but it's a you know it's a small it's a contribution um, that is very small compared to the task of what we actually need to do. So I think in terms of strengths and weaknesses, that's just what I would add. Um. Yeah, and I mean, just to move from that to what I think the tasks are for the socialist black today, and I mean, bear in mind, um, uh, DSA is an incredibly heterogeneous uh, organization um, uh, politically, um, and so while there are definitely some strong t trends of opinion um, in it, in many ways, um, I have to sort of, you know, organize to win people over to this vision within DSA as much as I would have to in the broader left, right, um, <laughs> with another organization. Um, but so, I mean, one thing that uh, Jen pointed to in um, her assessment of the state of politics in the United States today, right, um, is that while we're in a sort of movement moment and we have this completely new phenomenon of um, wide layers of people calling them socialists um, and there are mass strikes um, for the first time in a very long time and, uh, and there's just like so much activity. At the same time, um, we have to remember um, that the left tend, always tends to overstate um, the, the size of this. Um, in American society, um, right? Um, and the reality is that there are still mass layers of working people in this yes. country um, who are completely depoliticized. Yes. Um, uh, you know, I think it, it was almost 45% of people um, did not vote in the last presidential election. Um, uh, and that's, you know, the highest turnout election that you could have in this country. <laughs> um, uh, and what what's happening is that they've drawn essentially correct conclusions um, <laughs> about the bankruptcy of our political institutions. Um, they don't see any possibility in political activity. Um, and they essentially, because of that, accept what um, Ellen Meekskins would um, call like the privatization of grievances under capitalism. Um, that uh, your problems are um, <laughs> probably your fault, um, uh, they're your responsibility, and if they're not your responsibility, um, then they're the responsibility, they're, you know, you blame black people, um, uh, or um, you just make it into a very uh, interpersonal problem, right? Um, and so people have accepted this like privatization of grievances under capitalism, um, and in order for socialist politics to have a hearing, um, before we can even turn people into socialists, um, we have to get them to accept the basic premise that it's valuable to uh, look at the world politically, um, uh, to have a political perspective of the world, right? And unless people are politicized in some way, um, uh, then we won't even get a hearing for socialist politics, um, right? And so, I mean, I, I think that um, what that means is that we have to wage um, mass campaigns, um, electoral campaigns, um, and uh, issue campaigns like Medicare for All um, that do, and Bernie's campaign was really the model for this um, because what he did was two things. He raised a set of ambitious demands. Um, they were not like small bore demands. 
Um, but by doing that, what he was saying to people is that they had to raise their expectations um, of what they should demand from society. Um, uh, so he allowed people to raise their expectations of what they're demanding from our political institutions, right? So that was the first thing. Um, and the other thing is that he pointed to the people responsible for why these things are being blocked. Um, he pointed to the ruling class. Um, he pointed to elites in the Democratic Party. Um, he pointed to class enemies and said that they're the reason why you don't have Medicare for all. Um, they're the reason why you don't have free college. They're the reason why you are poor and struggling um, and why police target you when you're driving. Um, he said that they're the reason for this. Um, and so he, he rejected that privatization of grievances in a way that was incredibly politicizing for millions of people who had never been exposed to, to that before. Um, uh, and so I, I think that it's really very, very important that we continue and extend what he did um, by continuing to wage these electoral campaigns that are um, intransigent and confrontational um, and act almost like a school for class struggle, right? Um, uh, and, and these issue campaigns, right? Like Medicare for all um, that can be really politicizing for people. Um, and so that's, that's the first big task that I think that we need to be pursuing. Um, and the second one is that we need to revitalize the labor movement from below. Um, it's incredibly urgent. Um, uh, we need to democratize it. We need to win it over to a more militant, militant orientation. Um, you know, the, the organized labor has to be the backbone of the social power um, that we organized to progress the socialist agenda, right? Um, right now, it's not the backbone of anything. Um, and it's very separated um, from the left. Um, and, you know, socialists and leftists have tried over and over through generations um, to transform the labor, labor movement, to win it to a more left orientation, to win it to a, a more uh, militant orientation with varying degrees of success. Um, and the one thing that we know is that you can't really do it from the top. Um, uh, you know, progressive staff organizers have their role, um, uh, but ultimately um, they're very limited in what they can do. Um, uh, and we really need to be recruiting socialists um, in large numbers to get rank and file jobs in union industries and in very strategic uh, non-union industries, right? Um, and to start to organize with their coworkers, um, to democratize their union, to make unions into the centers of working class political life once again. Um, and if they can do that, then, then they can turn union members and workers more broadly into tribunes for labor um, and into tribunes for, um, for the working class more broadly, right? Um, and unless we do that, um, we're, we're going to be, continue to be marginalized and continue to be ineffective, um, right? Um, and actually, you know, the first the first task has a relationship with with this to a certain extent um, because it's uh, uh, it opens up. You know, if we're if we're working in unions, it opens up union members to the uh, the criticisms and the politics that we want to introduce to them, right? Um, uh, and you know, I have, I have my criticisms of the way that the Labor for Bernie project went, um, but it has a, a lot of potential as an idea, and I really hope that 
um, socialist union activists, um, when Bernie 2020 comes around again, are bringing resolutions to their um, to their union meetings to support Bernie Sanders um, and waging campaigns um, to support Bernie Sanders because it's like an, an amazing. Um, what it will do is just expose all the con contradictions of the union bureaucracy um, and their involvement in politics and their involvement in the Democratic Party um, in a way that nothing else could, right? Um, but you need to be doing that the first, things like campaigns for Bernie, in order to be able to do the second, right? Um, uh, and so the third, the third sort of broad final task that I would say is that if we really need to build the organizational capacity um, of the left. Uh, there's been so much exciting things happening this year, um, but you know, I, I can say from DSA, the, um, the capacity of our locals across the country um, to effectively support the strike wave, for example, um, was very uneven, um, through no fault of their own. Um, uh, uh, out of the earlier problems of capacity that I was talking about, right? Um, but it, it was uneven, and what it means is that it's not guaranteed that um, all these incredible uh, uh, rebellions um, uh, can amount to more than the sum of their parts, right? Um, uh, it means that all of these we all of these opportunities to build something more out of these moments of rupture um, are just slipping like sand through our fingers um, if we're not able to build some new organization out of them. Um, and so we, it, we really need to build the organizational capacity of the left in order to effectively take advantage of the opportunities that um, are showing up. Wow, okay. <laughs> um, said a whole lot that I feel like would be like five different talks at this conference. So um, I'm going to pick up a couple of the strands, uh, agree with some points and disagree with others. But I just want to start by saying like how much I appreciate how both sober and like honest and detailed you're being um, about what the situation is. For us to build collaborations on the left and collaborations between our organizations that can strengthen both of our projects, and I think what is our at least you and I a common um, project of the transformation um, of society. So I'll I'll say a couple of things. And Jason initially asked, like, what are your long-term tasks and what are the more immediate tasks? And I'm going to start with more immediate and then go to long-term and then come back to medium-term. <laughs> um, and so in terms of the immediate, I think there's a couple of things about what you were saying. I think the question of protest into power and that whole question of the dynamics of protest is an important one because I think that there are so many people who have been political for a while or who are becoming political who I think um, downplay the significance of the protest movements of the last year and a half. I'll just, I'll just say that. I think that there's more people have been out on street protests in the last year and a half than at any point in US history. Um, one in five people said they participate in a political protest. And while these go up and down and haven't won any lasting demands for the most part, I do think that they have 
proven to be what Rosa Luxemburg talks about in the mass strike is sort of the fertilization of the political soil that can provide the ground and basis on which the economic struggle will erupt and then feed back into the political struggle. And so I think that the sort of relationship between the political and economic struggle is something that I think is important to have a conversation around. And I think it's also important because where I really agree is that one of the primary things we need to be doing right now is continuing to build up our forces, right? Like we are still at the very beginning of a process and, you know, 45,000 members and, you know, maybe 2,500 members of the revolutionary left, that's still a drop in the bucket compared to what's needed. And the sort of coherence of that is going to be very important. And that there are people going onto those protests or who are trying to find ways to be political um, every single day that we want to be out there meeting and creating a conduit for them back into organizations. Um, and I think that that's incredibly important and I think that we need to um, begin to figure out how to build organizational infrastructure that can bind people together through the ups and downs. And I think that that's bigger than just campaigns. I think that that's something more than the sum of its parts, as you were talking about. I think that's a process of political education, study groups, deliberation, learning how to have debate, um, meetings where we, you know, really not just like flesh out and discuss like all the questions you're talking about. I think how people are going to get trained to do that kind of work you're talking about and think about things is creating those political spaces for people. And I think there are way too few of those political spaces um, in the United States. And I would just say that I think that that's an area where I think our two organizations can really work together um, and begin to do that together, whether that's through joint panels. We've done a lot of joint socialist contingents, which I think really help to cohere the left. Um, leaflets, like newspaper articles, exchanges of ideas and publications. I think all of those could help to create those webs in a, in a better way. Um, I think the other task is the building up of the confidence about self-activity. Um, and I think you talked about that, how there's this sort of class idea, but it's not rooted in the working class, and it's not the sense of the working class. And that is where I disagree with the question of the electoral campaigns, because I think there's no doubt that Bernie Sanders popularized socialism. And in some ways, like, I don't know if you did, but I had no say in whether Bernie was going to run and as a socialist or on the Democratic Party line. I doubt you did either. Um, that's just something that fell, you know, from the skies for us and was for us to take advantage of. And I think the left has done an amazing job of taking advantage of it. Um, I think that's a different question than the sort of responsibilities and opportunities that exist for organizations to sort of um, what's the word, Megan Day used this term, steward the, the left and the working class through these next few years. And I think that the problem with the sort of electoral focus is that even though I think some of the campaigns for the individuals involved in them may take on a movement, you know, feel, I was involved in the Nader campaign and it certainly had that kind of a feel, um, the overall political tendency is towards um, mitigating against that self-activity of the working class and reinforcing the idea that it's elections that are a way that change things. And one of the reasons I think that's so important is because the common sense in our society over the next two years is going to be vote Trump out. You know, flip the house, vote Trump out, fascism is on the doorstep, and like, we just need to vote. And I think that for millions of people, they are not going to necessarily distinguish between an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a Julia Salazar, and a um, Elizabeth Warren or a Chuck, you know what I mean? Like, it's going to be like, we have to get that vote out. And so I think beginning to set 
some boundaries and guidelines for a new emerging left, even if in the short term that's harder, um, I think that that helps to build the capacity of the left. So I think about campaigns like Jabari Grisport's campaign, which was an independent campaign in New York City, and he, you know, he didn't win, um, but he did really well, and he began to talk about building a movement, and I think that more of that, um, I think, goes further to building the basis for a new socialist left. And I had a bunch more to say about the medium term and longer term goals, but I also feel like there's a lot there, so if you want to respond to that before I do. Like, if you have anything you want to say about that, like. Um, I mean, yeah, I'll just, I'll just speak briefly um, to that. I would say that, um, you're right that there's going to be this like mass momentum towards just flipping the house um, and electing Democrats in, in the fall. Um, uh, it doesn't matter what kind of Democrats they are. That is definitely real. Um, and a lot of it is somewhat um, misplaced. Like uh, in West Virginia, for example, um, we know that there are tendencies um, of people right after the strike turned to remember in November, um, uh, uh, which I think was sort of the wrong conclusion because you know, the legislature in West Virginia um, was overwhelmingly Republican, um, and that didn't seem to matter when, um, uh, uh, like, West Virginia's teachers were still able to extract historic concessions um, uh, that they haven't been able to uh, uh, in any other context. Um, and it's a lesson that when your social power is high enough, um, uh, that's when you can really extract concessions from the state, right? Um, and it has, it, you know, not everything has to do with the, the balance in the legislature, right? Um, but I would, I would say that I think that people do distinguish between um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Julia Salazar um, and your run-of-the-mill Democrat. Um, and I think that's the reason why Alexandria's election has been like a lightning bolt in the political landscape, um, why she's receiving mass press attention and why she went from, why she advanced like by 30 points in the last three weeks of her campaign. Um, uh, and I think it's because people recognize that there is something qualitatively different about what they're doing. And it has to do, yes, with their rhetoric. It has to do, yes, with the sort of movement feeling of their campaign. Yes, it has to do with the fact that, you know, they're not taking campaign donations from corporations. Um, uh, but one thing, one reason why people recognized um, that Alex's campaign was different actually had to do with the fact that she ran in the primary. Um, uh, because, you know, and I, I do think that there are some, you know, uh, tendencies in DSA that overemphasize over the inside part of the inside-outside strategy, right? And that we need to be more ambitious about campaigns like Jabari's. Um, but in the case of AOC's election, um, if she had decided to run in the general in the fall, I think that that would have been like writing a press release and sending it to Joe Crowley's office that I don't actually intend to challenge your seat. Um, like, uh, there are a zillion races happening in the fall. Nobody would have been paying attention to her at all. Um, uh, and, and it would have been like announcing that it was a completely symbolic campaign, right? Um, and I think that the reason why um, there was that extra charge of like, 
uh, intransigence and confrontationalness um, to her campaign um, was because it was very clear um, that she was running to win and she was running to unseat Joe Crowley. Um, uh, and uh, that's one element of these campaigns that's really important to re retain, um, which is that we're running against powerful incumbents um, uh, and not for seats that are handed to us by the Democratic Party, um, uh, not, you know, uh, against uh, empty seats. Like, there's a real element that's about running against powerful inc incumbents um, and making sure that we're representing a really direct threat to these establishment politicians, um, that we're actually gonna take them out of their seats, right? Um, and so I think that I think that people really can distinguish between that um, and a regular Democrat who would never, never dare to challenge Joe Crowley um, uh, uh, or to run a campaign the way that she did. Uh, yeah, I'll just say that. <laughs> Um, so I just want to say Ella's right and I was wrong, um, or I spoke too loosely. Um, I absolutely think people can tell the difference between an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and a Crowley, and I do agree that that is part of the significance of her election. And I think that's true of Bernie Sanders, and I think that's true of many um, socialist candidates who run. So I just want to, at the risk of being a Nancy Pelosi who says this is not different at all, um, obviously this is very different and reflects a big sentiment. So I totally agree. Um, I think that what I was trying to get at is that in the last instance, when it's November, and whatever the choices are that face us, I don't think that, I think there may be a small number of people who do this, but I think most people are going to come to the polls and they're going to pull down the line. So they're going to vote for whatever Democratic candidate is up against Trump. They're going to vote for Ocasio-Cortez. Um, they're going to vote for whatever standard issue Democrat is also running. They'll just go, they'll go down the line because we have to get out the Republicans. And I think that the logic of that, the sort of logic of lesser evilism is the thing that has kept the left trapped for so long and it's what's kept the working class trapped for so long, and it's rooted in this whole question of power, right? It's rooted in this whole question of self-activity because it's this idea that unless we have people in office who are gonna represent our interests or who we can at least pressure to represent our interests that we're not gonna be able to win the things that we need. And I think that that was the sentiment in Oklahoma where the whole idea is, you know, we couldn't get quite as far as West Virginia got um, or as Arizona got, and so the main focus has to be on running elections. Um, there's an example closer to home that people have been talking a lot about this weekend, um, but I think it's a very instructive one of the Chicago Teachers Union, um, which led a very heroic strike in 2012, um, led a huge fight against the closure of 55 schools um, in Chicago. They lost that fight. Um, and then the conclusion that many people drew was therefore we need to run in elections because that's where we're going to win is that in the legislative arena and at the ballot box because we're going to need people to represent us. And I think there's such a power, like I think the power of that argument is so strong um, and it's not just an argument, like it's not just an ideological question, it's the thousand strings that bind unions, social movement organizations, NGOs, etc. to the Democratic Party. I think breaking the hold of that remains incredibly um, important and that's why I think once you enter onto that terrain it's very difficult but I want to sort of transition from that to sort of some of the medium term goals because 
I agree that if Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez runs on her own, I don't know that it would exactly be amounting to a press release, but, but I think it wouldn't get a ton of traction. You know what I mean? Like, I think that they're, for the same reasons I just said everyone's going to go pull the, you know, lever for uh, Democrats in November, I think the space for independent campaigns, it's a huge challenge if you're just talking about one or two independent campaigns absent a vision of building something different. But I think that if you take the thousands of people that exist in DSA um, who do actually think we need to move beyond the Democratic Party, that don't think the Democratic Party represents us, who want a more left-wing alternative, who are currently committed to this inside-outside strategy, and if those thousands of people were able to join with the thousands of people in the revolutionary left that exists right now, and a layer of people beyond them, and say, we are gonna embark on a new project. We are gonna be embark on the project of building a socialist left in this country that is independent from the Democratic Party, that is not simply electoral, that can run campaigns, that can run political education, that can do propaganda, and we will begin to run some electoral campaigns, and we don't expect to win. And I think that's a big, you know, that's a hard sell, but it's an honest sell to people, and it begins to build up self-activity and self-consciousness and militancy and combativity. And I think those forces exist in a way that they didn't exist two years ago. And I think that's what's different about DSA having emerged on the scene and the fact that there's a layer of people within DSA who are incredibly, you know, far to the left on these questions and represent the general sort of consensus that the Democrats don't represent us. And I think that rather than, you know, I, I think people are trying to embark on this strategy and see if it works. And I don't expect to, like, you know, end this with us clicking beers and deciding we're building a new independent party. Um, although that'd be nice. Um, but so it's like, I, we'll click beers. Um, but, you know, I wish you well and we'll continue to argue about that. But I think that that has to be, I think that is um, a very concrete alternative that these new forces on the socialist left brings into being. And I would like to start having those conversations because, you know, like we talked about in 2020, you know, if there's a Democratic run Congress and a Democratic presidency, the question of differentiation from the Democratic Party and not being stained with being the party of austerity, like, that's going to be a big question. And so I think in the medium term, that question about how we can build up those collaborations, um, I think is really important. So uh, I'm glad you, you ended there, Jen, because that sort of leads me into the final question that I want to ask before we open it up, which is about collaboration. Uh, we, we didn't just form a party, right? Yes. No. Okay. Yeah. You're the president. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Good night. Uh, okay, so, so assuming we're not actually going to do that, uh, as great as that does sound, um, the... You know, it seems to me that there's obviously room for collaboration, for and, and not just collaboration, but for division of labor on the left, that different organizations are doing different things. Um, I wanted to ask you two questions about that. Um, one about your own organization, and then one uh, about the collaboration. The, the, the part A is, just gets to a little bit of the difference, you know, which Ella alluded to earlier, that, that the DSA is a broad tent organization, which means that lots of different people can come in there as their first, you know, as their first stop on the, uh, on the way, you know, uh, like, I'm sorry, as a, they can come in without a, a precondition of, of having a specific idea, and they can work things, and where they can work. <laughs> a 
on the way to the party we will build with me as president. I told you to No, but the, the, it's an immediate landing place where people can radicalize and say, yes, I want to be part of this. And I, I, and I, but I mean, I imagine has also some limitations of working with that many different ideas. So I'm hoping, you know, you can say, what is one thing that you think is really exciting, uh, you know, about being a broad tent organization, and one thing that's that's a challenge? Jen, uh, you know, the ISO is a line organization, right? So we're not what, uh, you know, what DSA is. I would ask you the same question. What is one thing that's good about being a line organization, and what's one thing that makes it challenging to operate like that? So that's part A. Part B is, you know, in thinking about a division of labor on the left, I think it's, you know, it's, it's not necessarily a zero sum. There's plenty of work to go around. The different organizations are doing uh, you know, work that overlaps sometimes and diverges at, at some times. So I'm wondering if both of you can speak to things the other organization, like to that division of labor. What does the other organization do well? How, how is it that we can sort of dovetail and work alongside you know, in, in, in the same line as, as each other? Um, anybody want to go first? Um, okay, so I guess the first thing I would say um, is that I think the term line organization is maybe not the best term to describe. No, no, I'm just sorry. I should have said that to Jason beforehand because he sent these questions in advance. Um, I still but, but because I think that's a common idea, I let it slide. Um, I because I think that the idea of a line organization implies that there's a series of lines that are imposed from somewhere, right, and that you know, we all adopt and carry out. And it's true that we are an organization that is not a broad tent in the sense that we have a series of things that we are committed to that in order to be a member of the ISO, you broader than just like, hey, socialism, you know what I mean? Like, that you have to agree to. Um, we're revolutionaries, not reformists. Um, we think that we need to build a revolutionary party. I mean, there's a whole number, you know, we have a historic um, opposition to working within the Democratic Party. That is part of our legacy. And while, you know, that's there's been a big debate about is that a principle or is that not a principle, I think the principle is class independence, but the way that's expressed itself for the last decades um, and long historical and hard-won experience in this country um, has been um, as a commitment to not work within the Democratic Party. And I think the burden of proof is on people um, to say that that has changed in some kind of fundamental way that it doesn't mean compromising your class independence in order to do it. So those are things that are much more narrow, you know what I mean, if you will, uh, than a group like DSA. We also have a very high level of commitment um, within the organization. It's a very, every member is an active member um, in some kind of way. Um, and so, and is expected to sort of, you know, we want to build cadre, we want to build leaders, um, we want to build self-confident people who read and discuss and debate and think. So um, in that sense, I think that that's what Jason was getting at with that question, but we are also a democratic centralist organization, which is a difference, I think, um, with DSA and is something that's commented on um, quite a bit. And what we mean by that is that we're an organization the, that can debate and discuss within that sort of broad framework that I just discussed, um, but that then also takes decisions. And we try to all move 
kind of as a body in one direction. Todd Creation gave a talk in the on democratic centralism in the last session, um, and he sort of made this point that like if you have five members, you can't do anything. If you have a hundred members who debate and take action, you can do something. If you have a hundred members who become mired in debate and discussion and can't make a decision, you can't really do anything. And if you have a hundred members who each go and do their own thing, it really doesn't add up to a hell of a lot. It doesn't utilize your forces and allow you to exert them. And so that's really the essence um, of democratic centralism is that I think the strength is that the more coherent and organized we are um, and the more firm in our politics and principles, that allows us to be flexible in building um, fighting organizations and building collaborations and building struggles um, with people and adopting different tactics and strategies and all the rest of that, but we start from that sort of starting point. Um, in terms of what the challenges are, um, I mean, I feel like this is like when you go on a job interview and they ask you what are your weaknesses? <laughs> because I honestly think that this is, this is the politics I've committed my life to. Um, and I, I, I really don't see a downside. Um, but I will just say in terms of what the challenges are operationally, figuring out where those lines are at any different point, figuring out what the boundaries are, figuring out what's up for debate and what's not up for debate, figuring out how to move together um, and not lose people along the way, figuring out what are the questions that even though I just said we all you know, take a vote and we all move together, you know, if someone moves the other way a little bit, at what, time, at what point do you go, Hey, comrade, you know what I mean? Come back in, and at what point do you say, hey, comrade, seems like we're moving in totally different directions. And so I think there's a number of sort of like art of politics questions and challenges involved, but I think that the basic method um, is, you know, is the one that I, I'm, I'm committed to, and I, I believe in and argue for. In the words of Kelly from the office, when asked what her weaknesses are, you could say, I don't have any asshole. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> I do think that DSA has some weaknesses, but also some strengths. Mm -hmm. um, uh, mm -hmm. And you know, I would I would say that um, the strengths of what you would call like a big tent organization, um, which it really is a big tent. Like we have everybody from, uh, you know, right social democrats to um, people who call themselves Marxist-Leninists um, uh, and like uh, libertarian socialists, um, like everything under the sun um, DSA has. Um, uh, and you know, I think that one of the strengths, especially in this political moment, um, is that we can be a, a, a space for people who are still figuring out what their politics are um, uh, to continue to be involved, to continue to be plugged in, to continue to be active, um, uh, where otherwise they would either not be active at all um, or they would probably be pulled completely into the more narrow politics of like, let's elect more Democrats, right? Um, uh, and we can be like a holding space for these people. Um, uh, we're not, uh, there's very high levels of disagreement within DSA because of this. Um, and there's not necessarily a ton of unity of purpose and movement, you know? Um, but it means that people can continue to be connected and continue to be active, right? Um, which I think is incredibly important. Um, uh, and, you know, the other, um, 
Oh, the other thing is that uh, because of this like huge diversity of thought and um, practice, um, people really get the chance to experiment with different strategies, experiment with different ideas, and learn through doing, um, uh, like learn through experiences. Um, uh, and that, I think, is invaluable because while, uh, you know, uh, it's not that people only learn through doing, right? Um, it's, it's very important for people to um, be having like real discussions um, uh, and talking about this stuff so that people have a framework to think about what they're doing, you know? Um, uh, but uh, people have a lot of freedom to experiment with this stuff and to learn lessons through doing. The weaknesses um, are, you know, for one thing, uh, Political education, in a practical sense, is very hard to do in DSA. Um, uh, it's very, very important, um, but it's hard to do because you get a committee together for political education of you know five people, um, and you have four different ideas about what should be in the syllabus um, uh, and uh, and what we should be doing, um, and it often ends in actually doing no political education at all. Um, and uh, and you know that's a that's a serious problem because people are really hungry for political education. Um, uh, they're really hungry to uh, to test out their ideas, to debate their ideas, to find out um, where these ideas came from, you know, and to have more confidence when they're talking about this stuff. But on a practical level, it's just pretty hard to do. Um, and, uh, and what it means also is that um, we often don't have a way a clear way to talk about ourselves to the outside world, right? Um, uh, you know, everybody and their mother now, because of AOC, is asking what is democratic socialism? Um, and DSA does not have a unified answer um, <laughs> at all. Um, and it's, it's like actually kind of scary because, um, you know, we have a level of visibility now um, that does not match our level of power or capacity. Um, uh, and um, and members are not armed with a clear way to talk about this stuff when the media comes to them or when the outside world comes to, to them, right? So that's that's a pretty serious challenge that DSA is facing right now. Um, but uh, but I will say that I think that there's also a huge huge strength to keeping this uh, like newly politicized layer of people in American society together and in the same space. Oh, like what we think is valuable. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Just yes. Oh, that's great because that's what I was going to say. So we're supposed to say what's valuable in the organization. Um, I was just going to say that I really agree with Ella about DSA being a space uh, for people who are not revolutionaries, but they want something more than what's on offer. They don't just want to be part of a movement organization. They don't just want to be working in an NGO. They want to be part of a socialist organization, whatever our left organization, whatever that means to them. And I just think it's a huge thing that, like the fact that DSA exists in the way that it does is a massive step forward for the entire left. And I would like to see it grow.
and cohere and blossom. Um, and I would also like to see a left become stronger within that um, and develop as well. And I think that, you know, and I also, I think revolutionaries should, you know, be in a revolutionary organization or at least in dialogue with one another, right? Like I want to be on the barricades with Ella someday. And so we have to think about what's the process that begins to get us there. But I do think that that's an enormous um, strength. And I think that if there's ways that we can contribute, you know what I mean? Because I think that there's a sort of idea, on, like I think everybody and their mother on the left <laughs> is looking at DSA and is like, here's this thing that's fallen, you know, that, that's, that exists and like, what do we, you know, what do we do? And um, I think there's an impatience to try to kind of transform that into something that it's not. And I think that actually DSA is valuable for what it is and we should appreciate it for what it is. Um, and then we should find ways to collaborate and work together that advance both this broad left, you know, sentiment um, and organization and that then builds a revolutionary organization within and I think that a revolutionary organization will grow partially not by like you know oh we're you know they're going to travel through DSA to the ISO it's more that both both sides of this are going to grow and strengthen one another and so if there's something that we can do you know what I mean in terms of political education and I, I don't think we have to agree on all the texts in some ways like let's have a syllabus that has texts from different traditions and has different ideas and like let's thrash those things out and debate and discuss them together and I think that that sort of politicization for a whole generation of people could really bind people to a project however broadly defined in a way that didn't exist before and I think that that would be huge so I'm hoping the conversation also continues after this um, in very practical measures to figure out how to do some of that stuff because it's very it's exciting to think about. Um, I mean in terms of so I'm like beating myself up right now because I had a brilliant idea in my head about what to say to this question at the beginning of the panel <laughs> and I didn't write it down and now I can't remember it um, uh, but there was an additional thing I'll, I'll try to come back to it if I remember. But there was additional thing which is um, uh, completely exemplified by being at this conference. Um, uh, you know, uh, the ISO has been, has developed this incredible model um, for the development of their members, you know. Um, you have hundreds of panels this weekend. Members learn to get up and, and do public speaking about, um, you know, their projects and their ideas and the politics and, and other members learn from them. Um, and it's an incredible space for like intellectual development um, uh, and the capacities of the left um, that you've opened your doors to, to DSA to participate in and benefit from. Um, and this is a huge value that I cannot overstate um, uh, to us. Um, and I think that, um, you know, I was, I was telling my comrade Mike that we really need to bring Paul Heidemann to DSA to do the same talk that he did this weekend. Um, uh, and, uh, and so this is, this is huge for us, both in terms of, like, we directly benefit um, from the kind of uh, development work that you guys can do, and we can. We are also learning how to do it ourselves. You know, um, you guys are teaching us how to do it um, to a part of the left that is um, predominantly people who are completely new to building organizations and completely new um, uh, to uh, to political activity, right? Um, and and so that's that's a big value for us. Cool. Thank you.
It is done. Uh, well, great. Thank you both so much for the discussion. Um, we'll give them a little bit of time to come back at the end, but I want to try to open it up now for discussion. H hold on one second. <laughs> so uh, we're, we're going to close Stack as soon as we open Stack. So, uh, I mean, it, it is what it is. So listen, this is how we're going to do discussion to make sure that we have as robust discussion as we can with the limitations of, of time and space. Um, what, uh, first of all, we're going to start at two minutes and end at two minutes so that everybody has the same amount of time, right? Uh, second is, uh, people are familiar with the hand raising thing. I just want to you know, expand on that a little bit. If you have a question, please raise your fist. We will try to get that out as early as possible. If you are from DSA, please hold up two hands. Right, like this, like as in victory. Um, and if you're an ISO, you just do the John Carlos one, one, oh, hand, just a hand up. Uh, anyway. Um, the preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org, a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org.